Let's look together now at the book of Galatians, beginning in chapter 3, verse 19. The word of the Lord says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set By his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we return to our series, walking through the book of Galatians, I want to just spend a few moments on the front end of this sermon, refreshing our memories, refreshing our minds, reviewing what we have studied up until this point. So if you'll remember with me that Galatia is a Roman province that Paul has journeyed to, and he has begun a church there. So Paul begins this church by teaching the true gospel, by sharing Jesus with believers who then trust in Christ and they form a fellowship, they form a church. Maybe many house churches form throughout this province, but no sooner has Paul left than there have been false teachers come in right behind Paul and teach a false gospel. This false gospel was one that was very commonly taught. It's almost as though these people followed Paul everywhere he went. And so Paul would leave and he would say salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus in his death, burial and resurrection. And salvation is found in that way alone. It is God's grace. It is through our faith and it is all accomplished in Christ Jesus. 
And then people come behind Paul and go, I mean, that sounds great. It sounds really nice. But what happens is you trust in that, and then you've got to do a lot of good stuff. If you don't do good stuff, then you're not going to make it to heaven. You're going to get there and stand before the pearly gates, and God's going to say you aren't good enough, and he's going to send you back to hell. And so what you end up with is these people who've taught this terrible false gospel that says you can earn your way to heaven. You just got to work hard enough and they believe them. It's, it's very comforting, right? If you give me a to-do list, if you give me, if I can just do these things, then I will make it to heaven. That's, that's a reassuring thing to hear. And so they put all of these Jewish regulations, these laws, these things on top of the people who were new believers and didn't know any better. Well, all the way up until now, Paul has refuted that false gospel beautifully. He has said over and over again that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone. That that is the only way to make it to heaven. He said it numerous times. He then established his own credibility. He said, I'm not a plagiarist. I'm not some false apostle. Jesus himself taught me this gospel. So Paul establishes who he is, but then a natural question comes up in our minds. A natural question should arise as we mature in faith. What on earth is the point behind all these laws in the Old Testament? If the law wasn't designed to save us, then why on earth do we have it? Why on earth did God give it? If it's all about this promise to Abraham, and if people are only saved by believing in the sacrifice that God provided in Christ Jesus, why give the law at all? So let's review very briefly. These are the sermon points that we stole from the Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer. You remember I, I copied them, plagiarized them straight off of his sermon. And these are the purposes of the law in a believer's life today. We'll be very brief. You may remember some of this. The law is a curb. It's not designed to save us, but it is designed as a curb, as something to help us stay within the bounds of Christian living. We see the law, we see the threats, we see the punishments that are there listed, and so it curbs us away from bad behavior and towards good behavior. The only problem is that it cannot keep us from sinning. It does not eliminate our sinful desires. It may help curb us away from sin, but in our hearts, we're still just forcing ourselves to obey, and our hearts truly still desire sinful things. So the law acts as a curb. Secondly, it acts as a mirror. If you'll remember, the law acts as a mirror revealing to us, showing us how sinful we are. When we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, and we read the commandment that says, do not covet, that should show me that I should be so satisfied in who God is and God's plan for my life and what God has given me right now that there's nothing else that I want, but I see in my heart that I desire all sorts of things that God has not given me right now. I find when I see the command not to covet how covetous I really am. It was very interesting the last two weeks and even up until today. I can't smell very well. I still have almost no sense of taste. And boy, do I miss it. I had no idea how much my mind focused on food until I lost my smell and my taste. 
because then nothing was very appetizing. So I, I freed up my mind to no longer be worried about what I was going to eat. What did it matter? I mean, you know, it's all going to taste about the same anyway. And then there were so many wonderful and gracious church members and friends that brought meals to our house. I didn't have to worry about what we were going to cook because food just kept showing up on our porch. It was beautiful. So I didn't think about food. I didn't worry about food. I couldn't taste food. And it made me realize, boy, my life has been consumed by thoughts of what will I eat next? Well, I really like the taste of this. Ooh, I really like the taste of that. In losing my sense of smell and taste, it revealed how sinful my heart has been desiring food and planning food and plotting it out. The same way is true with the law. When we read the commands that say don't covet, we can realize, oh my goodness, I covet everything I'm not supposed to covet. I covet everything my neighbor has. I want what they've got. I want better than they've got. I want to validate myself by that. In the same way with murder, in the same way with lust, in the same way with all of these things that Jesus teaches, even on the Sermon on the Mount, the law is a mirror to show us how sinful our hearts really are. So the purpose of the law was not to save us, but to help curb our behavior and to mirror into our own hearts how sinful we are, but the law could never do anything about it. Remember, we used the analogy of a thermometer versus a thermostat. So a thermometer, if you have a fever, you use a thermometer, put it in your ear, do the little infrared ones across your forehead. All that thermometer does is tell you what your temperature is. It can do nothing to adjust your internal temperature. It just reads out what it is. That's the law. The gospel is the thermostat. And you set the thermostat, drop it two degrees, and the thermostat tells the air conditioner to come on and things begin to cool off in the house. The gospel actually has the power to change us. The law does not. Now, it didn't happen this service. But in the first service, I must have been living right and I was in step with the Holy Spirit because right when I described the gospel as a thermostat, that when you change the thermostat, the air conditioner comes on. Lo and behold, God turned on the air conditioner. It was a beautiful sight. I wish you guys could have been there, but you weren't. I tried to make it happen just now. It didn't happen. So the air conditioner's still not on. I must not be walking with the Holy Spirit like I was at 8 o'clock. Anyway, the gospel is a thermostat. The law is a thermometer. So that moves us to the third thing. It is a guide. It is a guide. The law is a curb. The law is a mirror. The law is a guide. And so it's a guide. It's a compass pointing us in the direction of godly living. But the analogy we used was it's railroad tracks. The railroad tracks point us in the right direction. But the law has no power to carry us along those railroad tracks. The law just points in the direction. The gospel is the engine that has the power to move us along the tracks so that we will be godly, so that we will follow God's law. That power only comes from the gospel. The law is just a guide. So these are three simple reasons that the law exists. Three simple ways that the law functions in the life of a believer today. It was never intended to save us. It was never intended to make us righteous. But it does have a function in our lives today. It is a curb. It is a mirror. It is a guide. So all of these things are true. And that answers the question, why then the law? But let's walk through the rest of these verses to build on what Paul's argument is. He says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? The law is not contrary to God's promise. 
If you'll think back, remember the analogy that we used about the Constitution versus legislation that is written. Legislation, laws that are written cannot supersede the Constitution. And if they do, the judicial branch is supposed to deem them unconstitutional and throw those laws out. So the law did not come in contradiction to the original promise to Abraham. The law came so that it might fulfill those purposes in our lives. The law also helped to provide a way for our sins to be covered temporarily until Jesus showed up. So if you think about it, all through the Bible, the only way to be saved is to trust that God would provide a sacrifice or now to trust that God did provide a sacrifice. But if you're living in the time before Jesus has shown up, there still needs to be something that covers our sin. Hebrews tells us that there is no Uh, forgiveness for sin without the shedding of blood. So the law provides a temporary band-aid to help a system that would point to the ultimate sacrifice. Now, look, I understand all of this is very thick, but it is absolutely essential to Christian living. It is absolutely essential for us understanding that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor There is nothing that we can do to earn righteousness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness only comes from Christ, and that was always the plan. It's not as though God was going through history and he went, oh, goodness, I've messed up here. There's there's this this faith thing is not going to work for right now. Let me put something else in place. This was a complete and perfect plan from before the foundations of the universe. Before God spoke and said, let there be, God already had this plan worked out and the law had a special place that it fit. But it also causes us to change who we are. This is what happens. The gospel causes us to begin to live in adherence with God's law, loving God, loving others. It's not a requirement. It's not like if you can just do enough, you'll earn salvation. But if you have faith, you will begin to resemble the kind of person that's talked about in the law. So here's how Paul describes that. Look at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law serves that function. It is a guardian. So the law then was our guardian, our nanny, our caretaker, our manager until Christ came. I want you to think about how in ancient civilizations there was a king who would pass away in battle or something like that, and the next person in line to rule and to govern would be like a two-year-old, like his two-year-old or five-year-old or seven-year-old son. Well, that person is technically the king, right? But, I mean, who wants a two-year-old or a seven-year-old running the kingdom? Micah, my oldest, is seven. Luke is six. And I would not want either one of them in charge of the United States for any span of time whatsoever. Not even 30 seconds, okay? Because there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff that happens if they're in charge of our country. So what would happen is, in the meantime, there would be advisors, there would be guardians, there would be caretakers, there would be managers. This young prince is the king because the king is dead, so it passes 
to him, but there's a guardian up until the point where they reach maturity. And then there'd be a coronation ceremony, and then they would be the crowned king. They're the crowned prince, then they become the crowned king. This happened in ancient Israel all the time. We hear, we read it and hear of it in Isaiah with Jotham and Uzziah, oftentimes kings would begin to allow their sons, the prince, who would be the crowned king after the king died, to rule with them, called a co-regent. The two of them would be ruling the nation together. And so the prince could learn so that when the king passed, the prince is trained up and ready. And so even in those moments, the king is acting as the guardian. The king is acting as the manager, the caretaker. This is the same place that the law held for those alive before Christ came, before Christ died. This is what Paul is teaching us, that the law was a guardian. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the need of the care of the law. The law is not required for our forgiveness of sins. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now listen, this verse is very specific, and this is not one of those places where you can take the word sons and change it to son and daughter. This is very intentionally written as son. There's a couple of awkward things that we just have to wrap our minds around, and we just have to embrace in Christianity. Men, we are manly men, right? It is, it is a good thing to be manly. We have deep voices. We go chop wood. Yes, we're men. We're also the bride of Christ. Okay, that's just a tough thing for me to get used to. We're talked about the church as the bride of Christ. As a man, I want to go build something. I want to cut my grass. I want to get my hands dirty. I want to be a man, right? But I'm also the bride of Christ. I just got to deal with it. That's just something as a man I got to deal with. As Paul writes, women, you're sons of God. And there's a reason that you're sons of God and not necessarily always just daughters of God because of what was going on when Paul wrote. If Paul had written, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God, then the daughters are still slighted. The daughters are not as privileged as the sons. Because in the society in which Paul writes, daughters couldn't own land. Daughters were absolutely destitute if they did not have a man in their life. If a widow had no oldest son to help oversee her affairs, she was in a lot of trouble. That's why there's so much about taking care of widows. It is not about the gender, male or female. It is about the position of son. Because the son holds a position where all the inheritance can go to the son. All the inheritance cannot go to the daughter. And so Paul is writing not about gender specificity here. He's not talking about the binary or the non-binary or whatever the society defines it as today. He's talking about the position of son. So if it helps, think of it as the position of heir. And so we are all heirs of God. I want you to think about the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Great book. I love all of those stories. I love Narnia. It's a wonderful series. If you'll remember with me, all four of the siblings are referred to as kings and queens of Narnia. When they set their thrones up in their castle, the thrones are all four on equal standing in the throne room. Because they are all co-heirs. They are co-equal. Their prominence, their position is equal, even though there are distinctives 
about them. There are some girls. There are some boys. But their position is the same. This is how Paul is setting up the discussion about Christian unity. Now, I know it may seem like that comes out of left field, but here's what Paul does. As he writes, he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what does that mean? Is Paul validating what is very popular in our culture and society today? That there really isn't male and female? That gender is fluid? Gender is non-binary. You, you could be any gender that you want today and any other gender that you want tomorrow. That you can have reassignment surgeries. You can change your genetics. You can change your chromosomes. You can do whatever you want. There is no male. There is no female. Is that what Paul means? By no means. Paul is talking about value and equality, not sameness. He does not say that in Christ all of our distinctives disappear. It's not as though in Christ there is no race whatsoever. It's not as though that in Christ there is no male, there is no female. It is in Christ all people of all ethnicities, of all genders, of all races, of all creeds, of all colors, of all backgrounds, of all socioeconomic statuses, of all jobs, of all positions, are all equal in value and position. Everybody in Christ is an heir to the throne. Everybody in Christ is the one who will inherit heaven. This is exactly what Jake was talking about last week, an imperishable inheritance. All of those who are in Christ have equal value and equal access to to that inheritance. So it does not matter whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whether you are a man or a woman. It doesn't matter who you are, who your daddy was, how much money you make. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have equal access to God. That's what Paul is teaching. It is about the position. It is about equality. And value and equality are not the same thing as sameness. Equality and sameness are separate. Yes, there are going to be people of every race, of every color, of every creed, of every ethnicity, of every gender, of every background and walk of life in heaven. And what Paul is teaching us, not just in Galatians, but over and over again, he says it in 2 Corinthians, he says it in Colossians, there is a new way to be human, and it involves seeing every other human as equal in value to yourself. So in Christ, there's no room for a superiority complex. In Christ, there's no room for an inferiority complex. Because everyone who believes in Jesus is equal at the foot of the cross. And I know that that might seem like you've heard that a zillion times. I know that that might seem like, oh, of course, everybody's worth the same amount. But why on earth do we not live that way if it is so second nature? 
If it's so blasé and so boring and so, yeah, 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 everybody's equal in value. Yeah, 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 everybody's equal in worth. Then why do we live like we're better than people? Why do we live like we're inferior to people? Why do we treat people like they're garbage? Why do we look at people who don't make as much money as us and think less of them even when they're a brother or a sister in Christ? If this is so easy and so cliche and so commonplace, how come it hasn't changed how we live? Folks, there's no room in Christ for me and you to look at somebody else and judge their stature, their position, based on how tall they are, how skinny they are, how fat they are, how short they are, how dark or light their skin, how much money they make. Not because those distinctives don't matter. Those distinctives are there. God made everybody unique and individual and distinct from one another. There are different races. There are different voices. There are different socioeconomic statuses. But at the foot of the cross, we're all heirs to the throne. And it's time that we start living and looking at other people like co-heirs. I don't know, but sometimes... I don't feel like I measure up. And then other times I feel like I've measured myself a little too high. Look, I added this literally this morning because the same thing happened. A perfect example this very morning. When I got here at uh, about 6.30 this morning, I pulled up my park down there where I parked. On my way up, there's this Nissan cargo van that is parked in front of the student building. And I, I'm like, okay, that's a little odd. Maybe somebody just left their car parked up here. Maybe somebody's just running by to get something. Well, as I walk up, the door to the van is open. And so it's like a slide open van. And inside the cargo area of the van, there's a mattress wedged in there. And this older couple is just sleeping in their van with the door wide open so that they can have a breeze and not have to have the van running. And they're just parked right here in front of our student building. Old buddy sits up because I startled him when I was walking up. Fortunately, he was not armed. He did not shoot me. I'm, I'm okay. And I probably should have thought through that a little bit better before I walked up to the van. But anyway, it all worked out all right. The Lord took care of me. But, folks, do you know my instinctive response? This guy sits up, and y'all, his hair's every which way. He's looking pretty pretty grungy, pretty scraggly, pretty haggard, pretty, pretty rough, okay? I don't have a sense of smell, but I feel like if I did, I might have smelled him before I saw him. He had that look about him. Immediately... I judged and valued that person based off of what I saw and deemed that I am superior to that person. Here I am. I'm coming to Sunday church. I'm here to preach. I have a position of prominence. I am a pastor. Who do you think you are parking in our parking lot? What are you doing here? I don't understand. So those weren't my words, but I'd be lying to you if I told you those weren't my thoughts. I'd be lying to you if I told you that wasn't my heart, wondering who this guy is. Who does he think he is parking here? What's he doing at our church? Did I invite him to come and, and stay? Sure. Did they hit me up for gas money? Sure. Was I nice and polite? Yes. But in my heart, I had a superiority complex immediately. Before I even knew whether this was a co-heir, before I knew if this was my brother and sister in Christ, before I had an ounce of compassion, I judged that based on them being parked in a van, sleeping outside the church, that I was better than them because I slept under a roof in a house that God graciously gave to me. And I drove my car up here so that I could come and preach. So I must be better than these folks. Who knows where they'll go next? Look, I don't like saying that to y'all. 
That's embarrassing. I understand. That's shameful for me to have those thoughts in my heart. But it happens. And what Paul is saying is not that there will be no races once you trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, immediately everybody gets the same skin tone. If you trust in Jesus, all the gender just melts away. That's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that once we are in Christ, we are all on an equal playing field. I don't care what your position is in society. I don't care how much money you make or don't make, how nice your clothes are or aren't, how great you smell or don't smell. At the foot of the cross, you're a co-heir to Christ if you believe in Jesus. Your position is one of high value. God priced you so valuable that he gave his one and only son to die for you. And if you've trusted in that, You're on the same playing field as everybody else who's trusted in that. But that's not how we live. We assume because somebody works in a certain field, because somebody has a certain amount of education or somebody doesn't have a certain amount of education, that this person is better than me or that person is worse than me. There is no better. There is no worse. The competition is over. We're all failed. We are all flawed. We all messed it up. The competition is done. The only one who won was Jesus. And the only way that we can win is trusting in Him. And once we do, we're all on the same playing field. And God has valued us all at the same level of equity. But equal status at the cross does not mean sameness. I'm just not the same as Walt Merrill. He may not have his luscious locks right now, but he can grow a beautiful head of hair. And I have just, that's, those, are, those days are passing, okay? It's, I don't know that I ever had them, but they're never coming back even if I did have them. Those are distinctives between us. But his worth is the same as my worth in the eyes of God. I have no reason to live in inferiority to this man or to any of my brothers or sisters here. I'm not better than you because I'm a man. I'm not worse than you because I'm a man. I'm not better than you because I'm Caucasian. I'm not worse than you because I'm Caucasian. Our distinctions, our distinguishing factors stay when we believe in Christ. But because our value increases exponentially, we all are on an equal playing field. And folks, I just believe that We've allowed our own skin to burrow deep down into our hearts to evaluate people as we live and as we move through life. And there's some that we feel superior to. There's some that we feel inferior to. Even within our churches. There's cliques. There's divisions. I'll associate with these people but not those people. Because our value system is not the same as the value system that is set up at the foot of the cross. But listen, this is not just one measly, small, one verse in Galatians. Turn with me and let's look at a few others. Paul says this multiple times. I don't want us to miss that there is equality at the foot of the cross, but not sameness. There's a new way to be human in Jesus. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Look, salvation is by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. And when that takes place in our hearts, there is a new self that is born and there is a new way to be human and it changes how we interact with one another. No longer do we have the audacity to value someone as less important than us, as worth less than ourselves. By the same token, no longer do we have the ability to say they're worth more than I am. God's put them in this place in their life. God must love them more than he loves me. Folks, it's the most amazing paradoxical thing in the world. But God loves all of us most. God loves you most. At the same time, he loves me most. Our value is fixed, and it's fixed by what Christ did on the cross. And so, folks, it's here. It's in Colossians. There's, there's no Jews and Greeks and circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no status symbols anymore. In 2 Corinthians, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. We cast aside the fleshly ways of evaluating people that used to be our norm. We regard them no longer according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, if a black man is in Christ, if a black woman is in Christ, if a Hispanic man or a Hispanic woman is in Christ, If an Asian man or woman is in Christ, if a man or a woman or a child, if a rich man, if a poor man, if a rich person, a poor person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, before we knew Jesus, We evaluated people according to the flesh. We had distinctions like Jew and Greek, slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, male and female. But in Christ, we recognize that everybody who is in Christ is an heir to the throne. And I just wonder, are you like me and and you haven't really been looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ and thinking, man, there's, there's a fellow heir to the throne. There's somebody who's going to inherit that imperishable inheritance. Man, Jesus died for that person. Or are we still caught up in the flesh, evaluating people according to the flesh? Folks, 
we have to repent and find unity in Christ when we realize that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. But by chance, this morning, you may be listening and maybe tuning in online, I I don't know, and you have never trusted in Jesus. You still regard people according to the flesh because you are still living in your flesh. Listen, if that's you this morning, there's a new way to be human. There's a way to be made brand new, to put away the old self and to be born again by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the only life, as the only way to achieve that imperishable inheritance. If you've never done that, I encourage you this morning, please trust in Jesus. When we have our our time of response in a few moments, come grab Jake or myself and say, I've never trusted in Jesus. I've been trying to get there on my own, and I'm tired of it. But folks, if you've been walking with the Lord a day, a week, 20 years, maybe you're like me and you needed this reminder. That in Jesus, we're not all the same, but we're all worth. Maybe you're like me and you needed to repent of the thoughts in your heart, of the judgments that we make, even when we're polite, even when we don't speak them out loud. You have to remember Jesus said, if you look at your brother with hate, you've already committed murder. You might be the best at masking it, but you know your heart. The Holy Spirit knows your heart. This morning, let's return to the foot of the cross and find ourselves equal with our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though you made each of us unique, even though you made distinguishing factors among us, Lord, you love us all the same. You love us unconditionally. You value all of us as priceless. You were willing to give the life of your one and only Son that we might have an opportunity to be heirs, to have an imperishable inheritance, to spend eternity in your very presence. That's the value you've placed on all of us who are in you. Lord, help us not to live with a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. By your Holy Spirit, live within us that we might have unity and harmony and see the worth that you've placed on people when we look at others. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, if there's anybody here, anybody online watching, Lord, that has not trusted in you. May this be the moment where they decide to follow you and make you their king and lord over their lives. Father, we ask that during this time of response you would move among us. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ.